Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is the show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our amazing expert guest this week is an evolutionary psychologist at the, Uni at the University of Portsmouth, Dr. Diana Flashman. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know what an evolutionary psychologist is, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So evolutionary psychology looks at the human mind in a similar way that you would look at any other kind of adaptations in perhaps physiology, right? So birds have wings and those wings are specially designed to fly at certain speeds and to catch certain kinds of prey. And in the same way, the human mind has certain adaptations that have evolved to help us survive and reproduce. And so, for example, I study disgust a lot and disgust has got... Uh, evolutionary history that's kind of human specific and the idea there is that disgust evolved to distance us away from things that could potentially contaminate us both toxins and disease and so there's a reason why things are disgusting and it's an adaptation to help us survive and reproduce for example isn't it true that women feel disgust more than men? It's very true, yeah. Women are more disgust sensitive than men overall, especially in the sexual domain. So, <laughs> no, I was like, because they meet a lot of men. That's yeah, what it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you look at, there's one very well known disgust inventory, and it says that there's three kinds of disgust pathogen disgust, sexual disgust, and moral disgust. It's a big question as to whether or not moral disgust actually exists for real, or if it's just a kind of extension of, of anger. But yeah, women are much more uh, disgust sensitive in the sexual domain, so there's a huge difference. And one of the studies that I did was I looked at whether or not, so if you, if you make men sexually aroused, so if you um, have them look at pornography and then you sh have them think about disgusting possible sexual scenarios, they're much less sexually disgust sensitive when they're sexually aroused than when they're not. Obviously, everybody knows that from being alive. <laughs> um, and so I did this uh, for my PhD. I did a study where I looked at women and we showed them pornography and then we showed them disgusting things like corpses, people vomiting, stuff like that. Um, or we showed them p disgusting things and then we showed them pornography. And we had also a, a probe in the women's vaginas. This has escalated very quickly. <laughs> and, um, we were culturing it up for a reason. Um, yeah. And so the, probe, so the probe shoots out light into the vaginal canal, and the more aroused the woman is, the less light comes back because that those blood vessels take, take up that light. So what we found is that women who saw disgusting stuff first, they became less sexually aroused. But we don't find that sexually aroused women, well, I didn't find, that sexually aroused women are less disgust sensitive. So while men become less disgust sensitive when they're aroused, it doesn't really seem that women have that same effect as much. And there's a variety of reasons why um, women are more disgust sensitive than men. One is just that, you know, women have a certain, like, five or six chances on average to have offspring, and they have to be choosier about who they have offspring with. But another reason is that women are just much more likely to get sexually transmitted infections. And I've tried to come up a way to talk about this delicately. It's very difficult, but women are, we have a pocket and you don't have a pocket. I mean, you have pockets too, <laughs> but women have a pocket. And so uh, basically if a woman has sex, she's much more likely to get the sexually transmitted infection of her partner than she is to pass something onto her male partner if they have regular, whatever, penis and vagina intercourse. So we don't know how long sexually transmitted infections have been around, 
but women are much more likely to get them and they have a much worse disease burden again you know again mm -hmm. so yeah uh, those are a couple reasons why women are more disgust sensitive than men. And how did, how did you get into studying disgust as a little girl? Were you curious about evolutionary psychology? Uh, how did you um, become who you are? So many reasons. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I'm kind of an unusual. I'm just I'm I'm a strange woman generally, but, <laughs> um, but uh, I was kind of a tomboy growing up, and my mother was like incredibly, incredibly obsessive compulsive disorder would only wash me in mineral water that she had boiled and put alcohol in. Mineral water? Wow. Yeah, my father had to bring home water from the shop. She wouldn't wash me in tap water. Wow. Uh, and she was just incredibly disgust sensitive about everything. Was this in Brazil? Because I know that you have Brazilian heritage. Yeah, no, I was only in Brazil when I was, yeah, when I was three months old, I left Brazil. But yeah, um, and so my mom was really, really obsessed with cleanliness and with contamination. Um, and she got better over time. And then I also spent my weekends, my dad is big into riding horses and my grandpa was too. So I spent all my weekends on this like filthy farm <laughs> interacting <laughs> with mangy animals. And then at home, my, you know, my living room is all white. Everything was completely pristine. And so I became really interested in individual differences and disgust sensitivity. And you often find that unpalatable sorts of areas of psychology are the last to be you know, they're the frontiers, basically. And so disgust is pretty new. Nobody really wanted to study disgust until, you know, so disgust is a relatively new area of research other, compared to other things like, I don't know, happiness or fear or whatever else, you know, fluffier topics. So it was really an, a niche that I thought I could get into. And it's really important for all kinds of reasons for health psychology, the you know, for sexual psychology and sexual health. And also dietary stuff is really, you know, people, they crystallize about what they eat when they're very young and people often can't change their diets because of disgust, even if, you know, they'll end up dying of a heart attack if they don't change their diets. So that's all super interesting and, and what I've worked on for some time. I mean, I work on different stuff now, but yeah. Well, we'll get into that, but you, you, we started talking about uh, men and women at a level that I was not quite expecting. Uh, but uh, it, let's broaden it out a little bit. We mentioned before we started the show, uh, James, the James Damore memo yeah. and things like that. As an evolutionary psychologist, what can you tell us about the psychological differences between men and women on average that can, are scientifically verified? Because I think most people understand the biological differences between men and women. Yeah. Well, increasingly less so. But, <laughs> but, but, but there are kind of basic things that we all know but psychologically it seems like we're kind of always veering between offensive stereotype and a useless generalization so what, what what are the differences between men and women um well so you might expect that you know one kind of very conservative claim you could make from an evolutionary perspective is that men and women should only differ in domains in which they've had different selection pressures and that doesn't sound like a big deal, but it will make a big deal. You know, so some of the, the big differences between men and women are in the sexual domain. And I studied with a evolutionary psychologist called David Buss, and he did some really interesting stuff where he asked men and women, for example, how long would you have to know somebody to, before you would reasonably be likely to have sex with them? And um, how many sex partners would you like over your lifetime and things like that? And some of the biggest sex differences are in that domain. Mm. And uh, you also see that, you know, kind of lesbians and homosexual men are kind of interesting in this regard, too, because gay men are, don't really have a limit in terms of female coyness on how much sex they can possibly have. And so you see gay men have a lot more sex partners than straight men can reasonably have because they're not limited by women's choosiness as much. So I think the idea that women are choosier has even been come into question recently. Uh, there was a really famous study by Clark and Hatfield back in the early 90s where they had a confederate, attractive confederate, 
a confederate is like somebody who's in cahoots with the experimenters. Mm -hmm. And they went up to a, a random undergraduate on the street and they said, um, hi, I've noticed you around campus. I'm really attracted to you. Would you either uh, A, uh, go on a date with me, B, come to back to my apartment, or C, have sex with me? And 0% of the women said yes to sex. And what percentage of the men said yes to sex? From a random woman on the street? 100%. 75%. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Wow. And the I ones who said no. You're surprised? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest with you, right? And maybe it's my innate Britishness, but a woman coming up to me who I've never met before, I don't know her name, and going, do you want to have sex with me? That would be, excuse my language, fucking terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I would feel my virginity grow back. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> so, uh, so, and, and, the, and they also included men who said, I would love to, but you know, my mother's in town or my girlfriend's <laughs> at home or whatever the case may be. Um, but something interesting is that 50% of women said yes to the date. So wow. It's, wow, it's yeah, it's 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 interesting, to, yeah. But very few said yes to the apartment, and there was these people who said, um, you know, that if you change the rules of the game, like if you tell women they're definitely never going to be slut shamed, the sex is going to be good, and they will be in no personal danger, then you can get the averages a little bit closer together. But certainly, like you said, that you'd be terrified if a woman came up randomly to you on the street and said, "Would you like to have sex with me?" You'd think she was some kind of bunny boiler. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, so um, I think men and women have similarly, uh, you, you know, would be afraid in that situation. The idea that there's a huge difference there. I, I don't know if that may, may necessarily makes sense. So that's the one domain. But um, you also see differences in, in other kinds of domains. So women have, on average, taken care of offspring hmm. much more than men have. And uh, in some cultures, you know, in kind of modern Western secular cultures, what's called weird, that's Western educated, industrialized, uh, rich democracies, men and women tend to converge and take care of offspring more together. But in most cultures, uh, men hold their kids like whatever, 15 minutes a day. Women hold their kids, you know, nine times as long as, as men do. And they always know that they're the, the mother of their offspring, for example. And so you should see a lot of differences also in domains that have everything to do uh, with child rearing. And there's also this difference in the kinds of roles that men and women have had in terms of hunting, gathering, uh, and seeking out mates, warfare. It's never been the case that a band of women have gotten together with spears and hand axes to go and kidnap the men from a neighboring group and have sex with them. Like that's never ever happened, right? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> and so, that's another um, uh, you know, the, this idea, there's kind of a, a fantasy and I think it's, I, I, the more I've learned about kind of leftist ideology, the more I think it comes from a really good place. It would be wonderful if human nature was so malleable mm -hmm. that literally women could be socialized to go to war to whatever. Uh, I mean, that, that would be a great <laughs> outcome, <laughs> but it would be great if human nature was that malleable. So I think it comes from a really nice place, but I don't really think that um, human nature, especially sex differences, uh, are that malleable. And so you see these kinds of, of differences. Uh, so... If you look at the the research, what you see is that there's this kind of minimization of personality differences. So for example, um, if you look at extroversion, which is one of the big five personality factors, men and women don't really differ much on extroversion. But if you look at the internal facets of extroversion, you'll see women are more warm than men are, and men are more assertive and sensation-seeking than women are. And so there's this scientist named Marco del Giudice at University of New Mexico. He's my evolutionary psych colleague. And he did a really great paper called The Distance Between Mars and Venus. 
and he said these you know these characteristics that men and women have they don't occur in a vacuum these personality characteristics they converge and they correlate together mm -hmm. and so if you look at a cluster of all the masculine personality characteristics and all the feminine personality characteristics they actually is a big difference between them and that's averaging across gay men and gay women as well so there's still a big difference between these two groups and if you look at the personality factors as they are like extroversion agreeableness etc then you'll see smaller differences or if you look at very specific things like if you for example um, what's her name Cordelia Fine did testosterone rex and she said yes uh, it's true that in these personality factors they say men are much more risk-taking than women are but they didn't ask about certain kinds of risk, like what about the risk of cooking a souffle that you've never cooked before? <laughs> I'm like, that's that's not that. Nobody's going to kill you because yeah. you cooked a bad souffle, right? So um, one thing that I've always been fascinated with is the you know how the, the premise of well, women like a bad boy. Is that scientifically true? And if it is, why so? Um, yeah. So I think that is true, but. Well, so it depends on the kind of environment you live in. So there's some idea that you actually you're malleable in the inter, you know, in the beginning years of your life as to how much you like these kind of what are called dark triad characteristics. So dark triad is narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. And those are, you know, how great you think you are. That's Narcissists. an description of most <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Um, narcissists are actually considered more attractive than other people who aren't narcissists. Really? But probably because their narcissism is somewhat informed by their actual self, their actual mate value, what we call mate value. So I think more attractive people are more likely. I mean, attractiveness and, ma and narcissism do correlate, like, objectively. If you think somebody's more attractive, they're more likely to be narcissists. And then whenever I fill out a narcissistic personality inventory, they're like, would things be better if you ruled the world? I'm like, well, yes, objectively. <laughs> That's true. But um, so these kinds of personality characteristics. So one idea it, it kind of floating around is that if you are in a volatile environment, so if you're in an environment where, let's say, you don't have a father around, then you're getting cues from the environment that either your dad's dead or that this is not the kind of environment where men invest in their kids, mm -hmm. for example. Or also, if you're in an environment where you see people deceiving each other or cheating each other. So what's the best thing to do in an environment like that is to have babies that are also going to be able to be good liars and good at deceiving and manipulating other people. You don't want to find the most agreeable, nice guy in the world to have kids with if you're in an environment that is volatile in this way. And you see this um, this kind of dichotomy about what women like in, in romance novels. So in romance novels, which are the best-selling books on the planet, what happens is the woman falls in love with a man who's this bad boy rogue, uh, one of the top, you know, they're pirates or thieves or whatever, right? And then he becomes so devoted to her that he can express this devo deep devotion to her, and he's nice to her and agreeable to her, where he isn't to anybody else. Mm. And that is sort of this feminine fantasy is to be with somebody who has the capacity to manipulate and fuck over and deceive other people wow. but doesn't to her as is so in love with her that he treats her really well and her family and her kids really really well and that is that's what really optimally i think uh, women want because that's the kind of phenotype that's the kind of man who could succeed in any environment and he would make the kind of kids that could concede 
succeed in any environment. So like he would be nice to her, but he would also be able to protect her from external danger and provide or whatever. Is that yeah. the evolutionary? Yeah, that that kind of thing. But if you're really in a really involatile environment, you want somebody who can yeah like fuck over other people. Um, <laughs> so that's like what you optimally want. And even women who say like, oh, I want a man who's generous. Yeah, you want a man who's generous, but you don't want to come home and find a tramp sleeping on your sofa because he decided to bring one home. Mm. You want a man who's generous to you. Yeah. You want a man who's generous to your family. You want a man who always tells you you're, you know, potentially that you're right. But there's like a whole manosphere red pill thing about how much women need pushback and how women actually test to make sure that men that they're with actually still have these kind of bad characteristics that they can still fend for themselves in that kind of way. Oh, really? Tell us about that. That oh, sounds dear. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't um, heard about this stuff. So uh, I'm writing, I'm sort of writing a book and I probably won't go into it very much, but I've started reading some of this red pill stuff because I just... So for anyone who doesn't know, including me, what is oh, red pill? you don't know what red pill is. Uh, is I'm it? familiar with red pill in the sense of people who might have been left-leaning becoming less left-leaning. There's I'm a familiar. lot of different red pills that right. you can possibly take. That, that's why I'm starting <laughs> to get the sense that's not the one you're talking about. No, that's not the one I'm talking right. about. Um, red pill is a... It's, it's men... So I can think the common wisdom is that women have it worse than men. Women are oppressed compared to men. And... The red pill, like for example, in this like red pill documentary, says that actually women do have some advantages, and these are underplayed relative to men's advantages. And not only that, but that women also do manipulative things to men in order to get their way. That women have kind of secret power. Wait, is this the Cassie J documentary? Yeah, I have seen it, and I've just asked you a question. <laughs> About something I've seen as but, if I've not even But there's, gotten, uh, there's like, extra red pill stuff. Okay. There's also like red pill stuff about, you know, what's called shit testing. So yeah, what, w- w- when this. women, when, and, and you're, I guess you're blissfully ignorant of the way. I'm You're learning about women, man. <laughs> That's good. I'm, I'm happily married for a long time now. So he doesn't even realize uh, he's getting played. That's how I've deep it goes. all of this information just not to know what's happening and just to be happy with my life. So please tell me what's wrong with um, so, yeah, so women, women, whatever, do, do something called shit testing. And they do a variety of things to see kind of what the boundaries are, like how much they can get away with, how generous a man is going to be with them, how compliant he is to her demands, especially if they're um, unreasonable. So uh, if you make an unreasonable demand of a man, is he just going to say, yes, I'll do that? Or will, he, will you experience some kind of pushback? So kind of testing a man to see if he has the kind of, status, whatever, balls, whatever you want to call it, in order to push back against you and not give in to your every whim. And I think, and I I find that women's kind of self-help books are very often like, you go girl and you're amazing as you are and there's nothing you need to do to change in any way, shape or form and somebody will love you just as you are. Whereas I find men's self-help books are very much saying you should work out, you should be doing playing chess, you should be trying to sharpen your mind and you also need to play this game that women are playing. Whereas I, I really haven't read very, you know, and I've been trying to read some women's self-help books that say, no, you are a woman and you are playing a game, but you're deceiving yourself about these games that you are playing. And I find that I'm very self-aware about the kinds of ways that I am t- testing things out and, and seeing where men are at with me. And uh, so coming back to the broader picture of men and women then, uh, I'm sure you've seen the Kathy Newman, Jordan Peterson interview. 
Actually, yeah. no, I, I mean, I started watching it, and then it was very frustrating, so I stopped. It was incredibly yeah, frustrating. Yeah, very, very um, I mean, he's definitely said some things that... I know that the way to get famous in the kind of intellectual landscape is to say things without nuance. If you mm. say things with nuance, it's never going to be a soundbite because nobody cares. Mm. Uh, so I know that I've seen Jordan Peterson definitely say things in a less nuanced way, but, I mean, otherwise he wouldn't be famous if he was totally nuanced, right? Probably. I, I'm not a huge fan of Jordan Peterson, but in that interview, actually, the part of the conversation was very much the James Damore thing. He was trying to explain that the gender pay gap is not simply down to discrimination, that there are factors like the big five personality trait differences yeah. between men and women. So what can you tell us about the impact of the differences between men and women uh, on things like the real world stuff, like the gender pay gap, for example? Uh, so... Uh, this wasn't. This talk wasn't recorded. I probably should record it at some point. But I gave a talk for the Adam Smith Institute back in December, mm. and I talked a little bit about where this kind of wage gap comes from. And I hope I get all the details of the study right. But they were looking at people who scored scored very high on quantitative measures like the SAT, men and women who scored very very high. And they were looking at this kind of elite intellectual group. And they asked the men and the women in this group, um, how many hours a week would you work optimally if you were you know, if you had your druthers, which I don't know what druthers are, but they are a thing that you can have. <laughs> and so if you had your druthers, how much, you know, how many hours a week would you work? And I think um, far fewer women, it's like 30 or 40% fewer women, said that they would work more than 40 hours a week. And so if you ask women, I think this is the major difference here. If you ask women, how much would you like to work in a week and how much time would you like to spend with your family and how much time would you like to spend with your kids, women say on average, I would like to spend more time with my family and uh, my kids and less time working than men say that they w would like to. And so that's that's kind of a, it's, it's not very well appreciated, but I do think it, it comes down a lot to uh, personal preferences. And men are also more willing to kind of work on call. Um, you know, th there was this study that was done which showed that Uber drivers, like men, were making 9% more as Uber drivers than women were because they were willing to work more when the surge came. They were willing to make more short trips. They were essentially showing that they were w more willing to take risks and do jobs that were less appealing. Um, another really interesting thing about men and women in terms of the the uh, pay domain is that lesbians make more than straight women do. There's something called the lesbian wage premium. Lesbian privilege. That's what, that's <laughs> yeah. what it is. Privilege. Yeah. And lesbians make 9% more than um, straight wow. women do. And, you know, if, if you were kind of going with the kind of typical story and you said, okay, well, you know, lesbians obviously don't present as gender typical. They often come across as more butch, obviously. I think everybody knows that. Yeah. <laughs> um, not, on you, uh, <laughs> not on the internet. Not on the internet. You hear that, so you, the sound of a meltdown happening. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, you know, th this is what, this is idea like, oh, you know, women are assertive and they act, and I think that this is true to some extent, that women who act assertive, they're called bitches, uh, you know, in, in whatever American black slang, you say a man who acts uh, dominant, he's bossed up, whereas a woman who acts dominant is called a bitch, right? Mm -hmm. I do think that that happens. Mm -hmm. But, you th would think that a woman who didn't act in a gender-typical manner, like some lesbians do, would make less money because they would be oppressed for not fitting in with the larger gender roles. But no, they make more money. And I think it's because lesbians have some of these characteristics, like status-seeking, risk-taking kind of behavior, that more feminine straight women are less likely to have. Do you think it's also as well because men are more aware of status? And it's more yeah. about men... In by, by their nature, we compete with one another for everything, for 
you know, for partners, for whatever it may be, that we're more obsessed with status, therefore we're more obsessed with working more, generating more money, so that we can present ourselves as being more successful. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, men throughout whatever evolutionary history have gotten sex partners and gotten laid by increasing their status. So, so it's right? not about getting laid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, we yeah, men men have increased their status in order to get sex partners, and you know, women who are high in status, I think that they're desirable. I think men also like intelligent um, women who are high in status. But I think that if you have a selection pressure, that and, and and status really differs from culture to culture. So this is one area that I think is malleable. If you made being a stay-at-home dad a really high-status thing, then you would see more men being stay-at-home dads. I think that women should date stay-at-home dads whenever possible, right? Because I do think that all of this stuff is really driven by uh, female sexual choice. And so that is a malleable thing. In some cultures, uh, there's not really any cultures where being a stay-at-home dad is considered the most high-status thing that you can do. And men chase status, whatever it is, money, um, power, land, whatever it is in that particular culture. So I think that is a malleable characteristic. But the fact that men are seeking status and chasing status, I think is pretty hard to change. So you're saying that the bulk of the gender pay gap is down to behavior? Choices. Choices. Yeah. Right. Uh, because I'm sure an element of it is down to discrimination. And we've had people, women on, who've told us a personal story about being discriminated because they're women and we have no reason not to believe them. So I'm sure yeah. that's part of it. But the majority of it, you think, is down to choices. I think the majority of it is down to choices. And, yeah, I, I think... Uh, I do think that women do have stories about discrimination, but I also think that that is kind of how it's it's framed. And so it's it's nobody wants to hear a story from a woman who said, no, I've never been discriminated against and I've never had any problems. At, you, know, you also see this in, in other domains. Like one of my colleagues did a study where he asked um, people who are minorities in America you know, do the do you think that you're regularly discriminated against? And um, East Asians said like 80% of them said rarely or never, um, and something like 68% of Black Americans said rarely or never do they feel discriminated against. And it's kind of squeaky wheel thing where you, the stories that people hear yeah. are definitely those stories in which discrimination played a very important role. And the same way that somebody might really overestimate the murder rate because you hear much more about murders than other kinds of crime, you also hear a lot more about discrimination than what is representative, in, I think, in the general population. Well, since you touched on that, I mean, we've done something controversial, men and women, let's uh, lighten up a bit and talk about racism. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, I, I remember, I can't remember whether it was Brett Weinstein or another evolution, or maybe it was Jordan Peterson in conversation with Brett Weinstein. They were talking about disgust being an element of uh, racism in human beings. And mm. the idea was that if a group of people encountered another group of people, they were quite likely to get diseases from them. Yeah. And you talk about this a lot, disease being uh, and disgust yeah. being very closely interlinked. Uh, is that, an like, why is there racism? Why are, why are people racist? Why are people xenophobic? Why did we evolve <laughs> in this way? Wow, really, the softballs are just keep coming. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so there is a disease story that people have told. There's a, a, 
uh, anthrop well, he's not an he's an evolutionary biologist, and he talks a lot about how if you were in a group and then there were these outgroup people, that they would have carried novel diseases for which you would not have necessarily had any defense against. I don't think that that really makes sense. And it's, it's, it was a really popular explanation for a long time. Mm. So xenophobia is related to what's something called uh, pathogen burden. So the more diseases a given country has, uh, the more uh, kind of bad attitudes they have against outgroup people. And these things were related to one another, they mm. thought. Um, and they also conservatism, political conservatism, is associated with how much disease there is in a given population. Um, I don't really know if one thing causes the other. I just think that uh, if you have more exposure to various different people, then you don't necessarily consider them your outgroup. But there certainly has been selection pressure over evolutionary history such that people who look different than you didn't necessarily follow your social norms and you would not expect them to behave ethically towards you. So if you encountered uh, somebody from an outgroup, which was a group that was different from you, they probably didn't look that different from you, for example. So if you think about um, the Hutus and the Tutsis, that civil war uh, that happened in Rwanda, those people, I mean, to, to white people, they don't look that different. And you, sometimes there was uh, there's just very, very subtle um, physiological differences between them that caused people to get uh, discriminated against. So in the current society in which we have people from all corners of the globe and all kinds of mixtures of all different kinds of ethnic groups together, that is really a very novel kind of situation where you know, previously outgroup members, they would have looked almost exactly like you, except they would have had slightly curlier hair or slightly lighter eyes or been slightly taller or thinner or whatever. And now you have people who look really wildly different than you. So there is a certain, I think, during your development, you ex you're exposed to these people and then you have repeated interactions with them and then you're less likely to become prejudiced. But I think that interacting with people who look very different from you is always gonna have some kind of fraught evolutionary uh, cognition behind it, because throughout our evolutionary history, you could not expect those people who were who looked very different from you to treat you with the same kind of moral accord that they treated their in group. So, you know, if, if for example, um, I did a study like a long time ago, probably like nearly ten years ago, which looked at ovulating women, and so one question is, we had ourselves was ovulating women. Ovulation is the time in which it's most dangerous to be sexually assaulted because it's the time when you can get pregnant, right? And so would ovulating women prefer outgroup men? So would they find them more attractive? Because uh, there's this thing called hybrid vigor, obviously, mixtures of two different ethnic groups. Those children tend to be more vigorous than uh, a single ethnic group. Or would they be more afraid of such men? And we found that ovulating women showed uh, you know, increased aversion to, to men who were black or Latino or mixed race compared to other white men. And those are the kinds of interactions, I mean, that have a deep evolutionary impact. If I uh, was, you know, throughout most of our evolutionary history, I would have not encountered anybody who looked different than me unless it was probably a very aggressive interaction. Uh, although there was some trade and things like that, I don't think women generally were involved in that. And so it's un unclear really how much of a footprint that has on our minds, but it is clear that it's very easy, for example, to leverage disgust or fear 
when talking about at-group people. And, you know, people talk about this example all the time about how um, during World War II, uh, East Asians were compared to insects and cockroaches and how Jews were compared to um, rats and, and vermin, about how out-group members are considered to, like, smell different or have these various other qualities uh, that are animal-like. And certainly there is a continuum, like a human-animal continuum, um, I'm just thinking about whether I should go into one more quite complicated study. I guess I will. So, um, <laughs> um, so you know what extinction is, right? Extinction is yeah. when you have like a, let's say you have a fear reaction. Like every time I show you uh, a snake, you have a fear reaction. And then over time you get desensitized to it. So this colleague of mine did a study where he showed white people um, snakes and spiders. And then he gave them a very mild electric shock. Or he showed them white faces, or he showed them black faces and gave them a very uh, mild electric shock. And it's very easy to pair physiological arousal, that is heart rate increase and skin conductance increase, with black faces if you're shocked. And, uh, and white faces too, so that happened. But then as he extinguished that response, as he started showing them black faces and then no longer shocking them, it took much longer for that response to extinguish than it did for their response, their fear response to in-group faces. And it was similar to the response to um, spiders and snakes. And that's where I think this kind of comparison between animals sometimes comes from, is that you're trying to leverage that fear response that you have towards non-human animals towards out-group members. Yeah. I mean, that's slightly mind-blowing what you were <laughs> saying there, and I was just trying to get my head around it. But one th point that I wanted to make to you is that human beings have always found a way to discriminate uh, to discriminate against uh, other human beings, even if they're in the same society. For instance, um, in the 1950s in the UK, like my father grew up in uh, Lancashire, in the north of England, and you were discriminated against if you were a Catholic. Mm -hmm. And even on the surface, if they didn't know you were Catholic, one way they could discriminate against you is they'd ask for your CV, they'd check what school you went to. Oh, St. Mary Magdalene's school, and yeah. uh, you're not going to get this job, X. Why do we do that? Even when a person looks absolutely identical, has the same accent, there's almost no difference. You can still find a way to say, no, you're not part of my tribe. I, I guess I would just speculate and say that there is this kind of motivation to to make an out-group uh, and an in-group all the time and to think about these kinds of things. I think sport taps into that mm. in a more healthy way than other kinds of in-group, out-group kinds of uh I don't know, thought, but I, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't explain that. The whole Catholic, I mean, I come from America yeah. where that's not really a thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. So I find that really difficult to kind of wrap my head yeah. around. But I think that perhaps there's just an appetite for that. And uh, certainly if you have a group of people that you're tight with, like a family or a kin group, and then you say there's this out group and they're actually trying to exploit us, you'll become much more tightly knit with that in-group. And so maybe there's a motivation to do that because it actually helps you get in better with the people that you're close to. That's just pure speculation, though. That, that, that makes absolute sense. Yeah. yeah, that's very interesting. It's all very interesting so far. Um, well, well you, can, we talked about altruism before we started. Yeah. Well, sorry, what did you say? I, I, can, I can try to take care of that and become <laughs> <laughs> There's a great American comedian that Francis and I both like, David Tell, yeah. who yeah. whenever he comes on stage, he picks out a member of the crowd and he goes, do you like comedy? And the, the guy's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, I can change that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, altruism. We talk about effective altruism. I, yeah. I mentioned that I listened to a lecture of yours about morality. Tell us what effective altruism is. 
Okay, effective altruism is the idea that you should actually, I mean, so not all effective altruists are utilitarian, but I'm a utilitarian, and the way that I think about it is that you should try to engage in actions, for example, or donate to charities that actually can create the most good. And Peter Singer has got an example that he uses all the time. Uh, for example, if you watch television, you'll sometimes see advertisements for seeing eye dogs. And to train a seeing eye dog puppy, it takes about 40,000 pounds. It's very, very expensive to train a seeing eye dog puppy uh, to become a seeing eye dog for a, a, a blind person, a blind person's companion. Whereas for the same amount of money, you could probably save hundreds of people from becoming blind at all in Africa from, from river blindness. So he kind of makes this comparison. Is it better to have one blind person's life become better because they have a seeing eye dog? Or is it better to prevent possibly dozens or hundreds of people from becoming blind in the first place? And effective altruism considers the relative risks and benefits of various kinds of actions on human flourishing, but also all sentient life flourishing. So there's kind of three main strands in effective altruism right now. One of them is um, non-human animals, which is something that I'm very focused on. So something like a trillion fish and uh, billions and billions of animals are killed in pretty horrible ways. And that's actually pretty low-hanging fruit. Uh, you could reduce a whole lot of suffering if, for example, you could for make uh, clean meat, which is now the big push, which is this meat that you make without actually slaughtering any animals or raising any animals for food. I'll go into that more in a, in a minute. And then there's um, decreasing existential risk. So, you know, by all accounts, human civilization has led to many, many happy lives. There are many more happy lives on this planet than there ever have been previously. And if we could stretch our resources even further, um, perhaps we could have many, many more billions of happy lives in the future colonize the galaxy and just create many happy, flourishing human or other sentient uh, lives. But if there was something like a meteor strike or political unrest or a huge pandemic, it could either uh, kill many, many people who would go on to lead happy lives, or it could basically take civilization back to the dark ages, where we wouldn't be able to make these strides in technology that are going to enable many, many more happy future lives. And then there's also eradicating global poverty. So that's another big strand of effective altruism, which is helping people in the developing world because they're much cheaper to help than people in the developed world. So you can, for example, for, I don't know, $3,000, give or take, uh, buy malaria nets and buy a year of healthy life or possibly save a life um, from malaria. So what they do, there's a bunch of different charity evaluators. There's like GiveWell, for example, and they evaluate charities as to uh, how much life does a dollar buy uh, for a human of, of flourishing. And so that's kind of the, the whole um, effect of altruism. That's most of the landscape right now is looking at those three main cause priorities. And I focus a lot on, on non-human animals. So I've been vegan for a long time. And I am on the board for something called the Sentience Institute. So what they are interested in looking at is things like um, how are animals being killed in crops? And what are the best ways, for example, to reduce the amount of sentient suffering on the planet? And so one thing that I generally plug for people is that you probably don't want to go vegan. A lot of people don't want to go vegan because it's difficult. And so uh, most of the animals that you eat uh, in terms of deaths per calorie are small animals. So if you were to give up eating fish and chicken and eggs, 
you would be causing 90% fewer deaths per year than if you carried on eating those things because it takes about 200 chickens mm -hmm. to make the same amount of meat as is in a cow, for example. Okay. And so uh, this is something also Ezra Klein, who I disagree with politically to a great extent, but he starts off all his podcasts now saying, give up chicken. If you give up chicken, then you're actually doing a huge amount to reduce the amount of suffering you cause yearly because mm -hmm. every chicken meal you eat or every two chicken meals kills a chicken, whereas it would take you about two years of eating beef probably to kill a cow. Mm. It makes a huge difference. And I don't think that cows are 200 times more sentient or more capable of suffering than chickens are. Well, there goes our sponsorship in that. <laughs> <laughs> we guys want to have KFC or whatever. <laughs> yeah, celebrate at the end. Give up chicken, eat whales. Yeah, give up. Yeah, whales, whales also. Yeah, I mean, people really have, I don't know why people like whales so much. Like, <laughs> I don't, they have like hair for teeth. Didn't and they? their eyes are all fucking low, and, <laughs> and their singing is terrible. <laughs> People like whales so much. I have to say, you have a fantastic sense of humor for me. <laughs> so yeah, you should eat whales. We should eat whales. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what, what else? What, prawns aren't sentient, are they? I, I I would put prawns. I'm not sure where prawns and they're are. Ugly. They're yeah, they're like the cockroaches of the sea. However, yes. however, yeah. two things about prawns that are very bad. One thing is that they're fed other fish. Yeah. So if you eat a prawn, it's like eating fish that have, you know, vertebrate fish, and that's not good. Yeah. And the other thing is that there's a lot of slavery in the supply chain for prawns. About a third of. I yeah. thought you were going to say yeah. prawns are slaves. Yeah. Prawns are slaves. Also, no. Um, so what happens is, uh, you know, people from Burma or whatever, uh, they go somewhere like Thailand to get work, and they end up on a ship. And they sort out what's called trash fish. So if there's a big trawling net, they, they take out the fish. And those fish are ground up to go into aquaculture, which is for prawns. Yeah. But what they do is they want to get paid. They get on the ship, but then they're out at sea. And they're sometimes just held at gunpoint for years at a time and never paid and never able to talk to their families. And so it was a few years ago. And I don't actually know what kind of strides have been made in this regard. But the Guardian said about a third of all prawns have slavery in their supply chain. So don't eat prawns. Okay. okay, so no chicken. All right, just kill cows and, <laughs> cows and whales. Let's go. No prawns. Cows uh, and whales. Uh, mallards, so, you can eat mallards. Yeah, we've already covered this. Because they're rapists. Yeah, yeah. they're rapists. Yeah. So, yeah. No, so there was, a there was a male chasing a female across the park the other day, and then I tried to sort of fling a bag of groceries at the male <laughs> to keep him from chasing the female. But yeah, it didn't. It, they, they, there was the chase that carried on. So, really? Yeah. He didn't care? Yeah, uh, but that, you know, that this goes back. This is a back. horrific story. I'm, <laughs> I'm traumatized. I'm going to go home and cry. <laughs> so we're, we're joking around. Of course. Uh, tell us a little bit about why we do what we do. We're both comedians. Uh-huh. What is the evolutionary... It's getting late, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So is that, is that, is that what you're it? hearing is the sound of Dr. Fleischmann about to smash us. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this, having my character eviscerated on See, camera. See, but I feel more even more... Well, actually, you're in a long-term relationship as well. I feel extra depressed. Because if you're a young male comedian and your rationale for doing comedy is to get laid, yeah. you have some... some ra that actually makes sense. Whereas you and I... It probably decreases our chances of getting laid with our partners because we're not even at home to do it. Yeah, exactly. So, so what we're not even home to do it. <laughs> not even home to do it. That's it. We're out in the evenings, begging strangers for for love. Um, so why why do why, why do we need why do we have humor? What is the evolution basis for humor? Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to start from the beginning. There's this thing called sexual selection. And sexual selection. So natural selection is the evolutionary force that 
creates adaptations that cause you to be able to survive. But sexual selection are the adaptations that you use to have sex. And there's a famous kind of analogy, which is with the peacock's tail. So a peacock produces a tail, and the females find it attractive. But producing a tail that's symmetrical, that's colorful, and that he can jiggle at her is actually <laughs> is actually very costly. Mm-hmm. It makes him more prone to predation. If he has any parasites, he can't grow that tail. And so humor is considered like a costly signal in the same way. It's hard to be funny as you both know. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> so it's very difficult to be funny. And so one idea, actually Jeffrey Miller, who is my partner, came up with, uh, what didn't come up with, but wrote a book about with the mating mind, is that human intelligence is a costly signal. It actually takes a lot of energy. You have to have a development that has you know, very little disease in it in order to be smart enough to do things like make art or make jokes. And so it's a costly signal. You're saying, look at how brainy I am, look how intelligent I am, I can make you laugh, because it's very difficult. And so they've done studies, for example, where they had undergraduates caption various different uh, cartoons, and people who are funnier also tended to be smarter, right? I agree with that. And so, <laughs> and so the idea is that uh, humor is a way of showing off how healthy and vigorous you are, because you're actually wasting your intelligence a bit. It's it's like a costly signal, just like a diamond is a way of wasting your money. Um, humor is a way of showing, look, I'm so smart that I can afford to show off in this particular way. And in order to make somebody laugh, you have to also have pretty good kind of theory of mind. Your brain has to work really well. So I have to have some idea of the culture that you come from. I have to have some idea of the kind of popular culture that you might know. I have to be able to not be too obvious. I have to have the kind of correct timing. I have to be quick, but I have to also speak clearly. It's a whole thing. And it's knowing your audience. Yeah, it's also knowing your app, absolutely, knowing your audience. Yeah, and it's, staring it's, away from the vegan jokes. It's difficult to be. It's difficult <laughs> I to dive be. right in there. <laughs> it's difficult to be funny. So uh, men tend to show off in this particular way more than women. Uh, I'd like to think I'm a funny woman, but like I don't actually think it really gets me anywhere. <laughs> I mean, it gets me somewhere with other women. Like yeah. I date women, and women certainly like that I'm funny. But I don't think men care. I mean, the men that I date tend to care that I'm funny. But I don't think I would have any problems if I was totally totally a wet blanket and not funny at all. Um, and you know, when I, I used to hang around with these people who were in the military and they were on this military base in Germany, and I found that all the men tried to learn German, got conversational in German so they could try and pick up German women, and none of the women who lived on this military base, even those who were unpartnered, learned any German because they didn't have to because German men tried to speak English with them, and then the American men who were on this German military base uh, were learning German so they could seek out women and so men have to try a lot harder and I think that's where humor kind of comes in so you're saying that so that's essentially all humor is it's a tool to try and get laid and and do you I, think I, I did put a lot of food <laughs> yeah. it. but, but yeah. yes that is the core of it that's the core argument also as well do you think because there, there's a stereotype that the more the better looking you are the less funny the less interesting you have to be is that true or is that just a wild stereotype? I, I had this friend who she was she was really obese, and then she uh, had gastric bypass surgery, and then she was really thin. And it was she's really funny, and it, people always said, "Oh, now I know why you were funny. You used to be obese." <laughs> <laughs> because you because you have to show off, right? So I do think that people don't work harder than they have to work in yeah. general, right? Yeah. I I mean I think that I thought I was really really ugly. 
until I was, you know, well into my like late, late teens. Yeah. And I think that I would be pretty boring if I had thought I was attractive earlier, yeah. right? And I think that's yeah, the same way with with people just work as hard and they they people tend to play to their strengths. And if you find out that you're funny, then you'll really work on that because everybody has a niche and you'll try and play up that and become as good at that as you possibly can. And if you're attractive, that's just a way easier way of signaling your quality than being funny, right? And 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 people generally don't tend to cultivate being funny unless they really have to. <laughs> <laughs> a damning indictment. There you go, mate. Yeah. That's your life. Never that's mind. my life right there. That, that's all we're doing. I love the moment where you went uh, basically, you know, uh, uh, being funny is a way of wasting your intelligence. I'm like, am I talking to my mother? <laughs> my mother in another form. It's conspic- conspicuous consumption of brain energy. Isn't it? Yeah, I'm not that kind of psychologist. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't have done it without a Freud joke, right? Um, it will. Was there anything else that you particularly wanted to ask about humour? Was there anything else that you particularly wanted you to, to ask about humour? Um, I feel suddenly under pressure now. Um, what? Why do you think? So it comes to a point where women find humour particularly attractive. And do you think if a, if a woman, what do you think is more important for a woman evolutionary? Is it being sound of healthy of body or healthy of mind? Which one would be more desirable? I mean, those things tend to correlate. So people have all kinds of stereotypes about, for example, people think if they think about a scientist or they think about somebody highly intelligent, they don't also tend to think about somebody who's very attractive and very healthy and very athletic, right? Even though good characteristics tend to cluster together. Hmm. So people who are really good with other people also tend to be smarter. But when we think about people who are highly intelligent, we tend to think about people who are highly intelligent and then have a deficit in other characteristics, Mm. like how well they can read other people, for example. Right. And those things, that's a stereotype that we kind of have about scientists and and funny people. So in general, if you're smart enough to make jokes, you're also going to be, have pretty healthy other factors, right? It's pretty hard to be smart enough to make jokes if you're, I don't know, dying of consumption. Right. Not mentally healthy, though. We know too many comedians to suggest any correlation. And just to kind of swing back to that kind of dark triad, narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, I think that there's a certain degree of showing how good you are at exploiting other people in humor because you're figuring out something. There's a lot of jokes that are tapping into things that people don't want to admit to themselves that they believe or taboo ideas that everybody holds or weird things that people do that they think nobody else knows about. And so that's another reason why humor is attractive because it shows that you have this secret knowledge of other people and that is one of the necessary ingredients for being able to exploit other people. Brilliant. And um, if you don't mind me asking, where are you politically? Because you've hinted at different (laughs) things. Yeah, where am I politically? Uh, I was really like... I was kind of a socialist in my early 20s, believe it or not. Everybody is. Yeah, and uh, and and I read Ayn Rand, and then that swung me a bit. Mm. And then yeah. I thought Ayn Rand is a terrible person. That swung me a little bit the other way. And so this has been back and forth. But there's not really any libertarians here in the, uh, in the UK. But I guess I would define myself as somebody who is libertarian-leaning, but also thinks that there are some services that the free market can't really provide very well. And I have joked before, I think I made a joke on Twitter that said, if you want to keep your male partner away from women, 
encourage him to get into libertarian bonds. <laughs> because libertarians are very, very, yes, like 75% male, very, very few women libertarians. Is that right? Yeah. Because I would say this this podcast is, is fairly libertarian. Yeah. No, I'm certainly libertarian. I, I don't know where... I just swim back and forth. I, yeah. d I don't know what I am anymore. But one thing I, I was actually going to ask is this. Do you think, you touched on it very early on at the beginning of the podcast, do you think, I mean, in a world, we'd all love to live in a socialist paradise where we're all equal, everybody's happy, we all listen to each other. Yeah. But do you think, essentially, human nature, those are fundamentally incompatible with the what, basics of human nature? Listening to each other. Yeah. And, and socialism. <laughs> but socialism in many ways, you know, this idea, you know, socialism, communism, the far left wing ideas yeah. of how we should live. I think it's a quote attributed to E.O. Wilson about socialism, which is a great idea, but the wrong species. Yeah. Mm. You know, because ants do that really well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And naked mole rats. But ants are all related, aren't they? They're yeah, all... that's right. And yeah. so are naked mole rats, right? Mm. Um, it, I just think it's it's very difficult, especially if you think about something like Twitter or sound bites when people are trying to talk to one another. The tweets that are most popular are tweets that are saying like, well, no one else is brave enough to, to advocate this moral position, but I'm really strongly advocating this moral position in a totally unnuanced and direct way. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to have a tweet go viral or you want to have a lot of people listen to you, then you have to give a fairly unnuanced position. And it's it's, nuance is really not encouraged in really any culture and it's a little bit alarming to think that it's probably more encouraged in our current culture than it has been at other points um, in history and what you have to do is you have to play to the whole IQ distribution right you have to play to people who would not understand nuance if it bit them in the face mm -hmm. and then you have to play to people who uh, really only speak in very nuanced terms and have very complex ideas about things and so there's always going to be that problem with populism is that People can have nuanced positions, but they have to present them in in this other way. And then I think that something that happens with leftist politics is that they want to throw out people with their ideas. So there's this kind of hygiene, epistemic hygiene, where if I think that you have, like, let's say I, you and I were talking and you expressed some kind of opinion that I thought was bad, you think everybody should eat as many chickens as possible. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you said something like that then I might say, now I think that all of your ideas are bad mm. and I'm going to completely reject you. And even ideas that you have that I might otherwise agree with because I can't think about you in, as, a, you know, as, a, as a group of ideas. I have to reject you as a person. And that's something that I think is really difficult in the kind of current climate is this desire that people have to reject you know, so Jordan Peterson, I disagree with him about a lot of stuff. I think he's actually very traditionalist in a lot of ways that I don't think are very helpful. And... There's some things I disagree with, I don't know, like Sam Harris about. There are some things I disagree with Jeffrey Miller about. There's a lot of people that I admire, and I have fundamental disagreements with them. But what happens now is that the more and more different attitudes are moralized, for example, if I said, I don't think there should be any welfare state, I don't know if I could totally advocate that position, but that's the kind of thing that I could say that would make somebody say, well, now I'm also going to reject uh, veganism. I'm also going to reject evolutionary psychology. I'm also going to reject all these other ideas that I think are clustered together with that. And I have this philosopher friend named uh, Amanda Askell, and she said that one really good way of getting around that is to communicate to people that you're talking to that you share values. 
And so if you're talking to somebody about, I don't know, welfare or socialized medicine or whatever, you'll say, I don't want to see people die in the street. I also care that people live and have happy lives. And then you start on that kind of same page. Whereas I think what happens a lot of times is people will think, well, you're not advocating the same position that I am. So you are a moral monster who also doesn't care if people die in the street and who doesn't care about human flourishing. And if you kind of start off saying, no, we have similar values, then you can then talk about how you're going to arrive at those values in different ways. But unfortunately, the ways that we arrive at those things, like, for example, if I said I believe in sex differences and I believe they're pervasive and I believe that there's a lot of things that we can't really do much about in terms of sex differences, then people might also ascribe to me the belief that I think that women should be uh, kept at home or they should be told what to do when I don't have that value at all. Mm. I just have a different idea about how we might arrive at uh, gender equality, then, and I have a different view of what that means than other people would, for example. But isn't it also intellectual laziness? So, if, for instance, if you say one thing, then instead of me actually taking the time to find out everything about you, your points of view, how in certain instances you're on the right, in certain instances you're on the left, in certain instances yeah. you're a centrist, it's far easier to go, oh, you're this, this, and this, and this, therefore I want nothing to do with you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the same way that you were saying, like, people exclude Catholics and you know, that there's been these these ideas about making in-groups and making out-groups. Uh, it is some degree intellectual laziness, but also it's much easier to kind of push somebody away who has a bunch of nuanced positions and then say, now we stand strong, me and, and the mm. other people who are in my ideological in-group. Mm. And if there's this threat from people with these other kinds of positions, then you can become much tighter knit. And you, you see that in all kinds of different Facebook groups and on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I haven't been on Facebook in a year and a half, actually partly because I had a really horrible argument with one of my best friends on, on Facebook publicly. And um, yeah, and so it, it's, I, I actually prefer Twitter because wow. even though people are, actually I've cultivated a really reasonable following. Even if I say this person said something stupid, very rarely do my followers go after them in a way that I'm embarrassed about. Mm. So I, I maybe I'll undo that. But I think I think <laughs> maybe there's a way to, <laughs> threshold is too. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't really care. People people say crazy things to people on Twitter. But on the other hand, you know, those responses are they have to be short. If somebody responds to you twenty times, then them they and everybody else who's watching them knows that they're probably going on too much. Mm. Whereas Facebook I just didn't want to read novel-length responses from people anymore about stuff that I had posted about, so I haven't really been on there. Also, my mum didn't want her. <laughs> so, so I don't want to have political discussions with my mother, <laughs> yeah, if at all possible, yeah. That's never a good idea. Uh, well, listen, let's, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up now. Tell me about this current climate that you refer to. Do you think, uh, you know, we talk about free speech a hell of a lot, you know, comedians yeah. were naturally drawn to that issue anyway. Is We hear from America that people like Brett Weinstein, Heather Herring, etc., there are issues apparently at American universities where certain things are becoming impossible to research or to do. Do you find that that's the case? Do you think that's a true and do you think it's the case here in the UK? Is it affecting Um, science, this climate that we have now? I mean, where I teach, I can say pretty much whatever I want. And I've even, I was on some podcast, was it? Oh no, I was on some late night, now it's on late night reruns. I told an incredibly dirty joke 
on television mm -hmm. and nobody really gives me any flack about anything at all at my university. I also teach psychology and human sexuality and I teach about some quite edgy things mm -hmm. and I've never had any pushback about anything whatsoever. Uh, some of my students have said, Diana teaches us things from a certain perspective and I don't always agree with that perspective. But of course, I'm going to teach things from a certain ideological perspective. Mm -hmm. And if somebody writes in their exam paper something different than my perspective, if they back it up with evidence, I would still really appreciate that, right? I don't get that impression over here. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, I know a lot of people, you know, Jonathan Haidt, Jeffrey Miller, Sam Harris, um, Christine Hoff Summers, people like that who've had some kind of pushback. Mm -hmm. But I also think they wouldn't be nearly as famous as they are now if they hadn't had uh, protests and pushback. And one thing that I really like that Jordan Peterson said is that if you scheduled a talk for him at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m., there would be no protests because yeah. uh, it's very hard for these people to, I mean, I'm not, not going to disparage them too much, but it's pretty hard for them to aggregate very early in the morning. They're not that well organized, really. That's a lovely way of saying lazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there, yeah. So there's, there's, uh, I mean, I'm still pretty agnostic about that. I haven't lived in the States in some time. And I also am in a sort of privileged position. As I'm a woman, I can say kind of what I want. Sorry. <laughs> so, wow. so I think that, um, yeah, as I, I just feel like I can kind of say what I like. And, and very few people have ever given me pushback about those things. Do you think so. if you're a man, you wouldn't be able to say some of the things that you say? Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think I could talk about sex differences in the kind of fast and loose way that I have in today, you know, on this podcast, if I was a man, because people would feel like I was ideological bi biased, you know, in favor of my own uh, sex. Whereas as a woman, uh, it would really behoove me to say women are very oppressed and I should be given kind of more advantages uh, or uh, concessions because of that. And that would actually be the, the best position uh, for me to take in terms of my own self-interest. And so if I'm arguing kind of against my self-interest, people are more likely to, to trust that. And then also, um, you know, it's, yeah, I think that, <laughs> sort of petering out here. Um, yeah, I, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm Latina as well. So I think I also have a bit of, of leeway about things in that respect. But, you know, I, I think that what happened to to Brett Weinstein is terrible, but I also think that he was at a very weird university. Yeah. And I went to a really super lefty liberal arts uh, university. I was not politically uh, and involved in anything at that time, really. And so I didn't really see much of that. But I'm pretty sure that if I had started inviting libertarians or Christine Hoff Summers or anybody like that to come and speak, I would have also experienced that kind of uh, pushback. But at the current climate, and this is this is something that people who like you know, libertarians and people who like the free speech people are not going to appreciate me saying, I think that they're actually getting a whole lot more benefit out of being protested than they are experiencing drawbacks or detriments. I would agree with that. But I think the point that they would probably make is that they're not after fame. They're actually trying to achieve something in terms of making sure that people can speak freely. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? So they personally benefit, absolutely. But I think a lot of them do so almost without intending to. Well, if they're trying to get to a bigger audience, certainly they're getting to a bigger audience yeah. that way. And and I think that it obviously it behooves them to say, oh, I'm really just trying to speak truth 
and these people are trying to prevent me from speaking. I think what happened to Christine Huff Summers, I watched some of that, or people unplugging the microphones and things. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, if I was involved in leftist politics or I was involved in Antifa, I would be embarrassed about how childish people in my in-group were coming across in those kinds of interactions. And so it's really making people who have sometimes very edgy political positions look really good by comparison. Mm. And I wouldn't really pull too much on that thread because it's working out very well, I think, (laughs) thus far, right? But uh, there are certain things that I think that are very difficult to research. And I think that that's going to kind of unwind at some point. We're going to have to, you know, behavioral genetics is really making um, leaps and bounds. Previously, you know, just looking at somebody's genes, you really wouldn't know that much about their personality. And now, uh, we're going to, you know, I think in 10 or 15 years, be able to give a pretty tight confidence interval about how agreeable, how intelligent, how wow. how promiscuous, like all kinds of things about people based on their, their genes. And we're going to know how much things are genetically determined and how much things are influenced by environment much more so than we do now. And th- there just won't be any way around that. So I think people who are ideologically motivated against that position now, because there's not a whole lot of evidence... Uh, that you know, genetics is so deterministic in all these different respects. But I think as that kind of the evidence mounts, you're going to see that. So uh, I think a lot of these problems will kind of sort themselves out. Very mm-hmm. good. Thank you so much for coming on. Listen, yeah. the last question that we always ask our guests yeah. is: Is there one thing that you think no one's talking about that we ought to be talking about? Or if you can't think of something like that, is there one thing we haven't talked about today that we should have talked about? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think that kind of the last point that I was making about the kinds of uh, strides that behavioral genetics are making. And then also, um, you know, in China, they're trying to figure out ways of giving people sort of a social reputation Mm. score. Social credit, yeah. Social credit, things like that. And they're trying to run their society in a a sort of tighter way to see, I mean, they're they're basically trying to promote social order in a way that's totalitarian. Mm. And I think that one thing that people aren't really talking about enough is that when all nations have access to that kind of technology, when you can, with a DNA sample or a picture of somebody's face, figure out kind of the likelihood that they're going to have certain kinds of characteristics, how are people going to use that kind of information? And how can we promote a free society when that kind of technology is really available to everybody? And I'm not sure how soon that's all going to happen. And I don't know a ton about it right now. But I do think that it's super important and people aren't talking about it enough. Oh, it's already, yeah, it's already happening. Yeah. Pippa Malgram, who I mentioned that we had on the show a few, uh, a few weeks ago, yeah. she, she's an expert in technology and she was talking yeah. about the fact that it's already happening. Yeah. It's already, they're already doing it. Yeah. It's scary stuff. Yeah. Scary stuff. Well, that's a nice positive note. <laughs> uh, all right. Dan and Flashman, thank you so much for coming in. Thank it's you been an absolute pleasure. Tell, uh, tell us, what is your Twitter handle? It's sentientist. Sentientist. Yeah, so somebody who prioritizes sentience as a basis for morality. And yeah, I'm dianafleischman.com is where you can see my publications and other And do you're writing a book? I am writing a book proposal. Ah, uh, book and proposal. We'll, yeah, there, I'll be blogging and stuff right. probably. We'll over come the back summer. and talk to us when the book is getting I, ready. I'd love to, yeah. yeah. We'll talk about genetics more. That would be fascinating, yeah. I think. All right. Um, just before we go, uh, could if you enjoyed it, could you please rate the podcast? I'm enjoying how Francis is looking at the wrong, wrong camera. Wrong camera, yeah, I know. I'm nailing this, yeah. Um, could you please rate the podcast five stars? Um, leave a review, or even better, tell a friend that you really enjoyed it. And, and if someone wants to follow you? Uh, at Failing Human. And I'm at Constantine Kissing. 
Follow us at TriggerPod on Twitter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're building up audi- our audience. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks very much. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.